Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen, unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who have cared for this land since time immemorial. I pay respects to Elders past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the program today, I'll be joined by award-winning writer Anita Heiss to speak about her new book called Billa Yaru Dangalangdure, which is a work of historical fiction set in Gundagai in 1852, and it's set along the banks of the Murrumbidgee River, and the book opens with a flood that leaves death and destruction in its way. It is a story that follows a young Wiradjuri woman called Wagadine, and it follows her life living with a white settler family. It's a novel of love and loss and belonging, and I'm very excited to be chatting with Anita in just a little bit. Later in the show, I'll be joined by award-winning journalist and founding editor of The Saturday Paper, also editor-in-chief of Schwartz Media, Eric Jensen, to speak about his first collection of poetry called I Said the Sea Was Folded. It is a collection of love poems that spans the first three years of his relationship. That one is published via Black Ink. I hope you can stay with me this afternoon. It's 1852 and the powerful Murrumbidgee River surges, leaving death and destruction in its wake. This great flood sees Gundagai in ruins and is a reminder that the river can give life but also take it away. Bila Yara Dang Galangdure, uh, which is the Wadri for River of Dreams, is the new novel by Anita Heiss and it follows the story of Wagadine in the aftermath of this great flood and shares her experiences of working within a white settler family with Louisa and the Bradleys, forced to move away from her family, her Miyagan, to Wagga Wagga. Uh, joining me this afternoon, is award-winning author, social justice advocate, ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation and author of this book, Anita Heiss. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Oh, thank you for having me. It is. Um, it's a great pleasure. Um, you know, this novel starts in Gundagai in 1852 mm-hmm. during the, the big flood. Can you tell me a bit about why you chose to start the book here? Well, when I decided to write an historical novel set on Wiradjuri country, I immediately thought I had to start a story with the heroism of this great flood because on the 165th anniversary of the flood, which was 2017, the town of Gundagai unveiled a statue of the heroes Yari and Jackie Jackie. And I thought at the time... How is it possible that the whole country is not aware, one, of one of the greatest natural disasters in Australian history? But why has it taken so long for national recognition for these two Wiradjuri men? And so to me, it was a no-brainer. I I had no idea where the story was going to go at this point, but I thought, um, I really want to write this particular story of heroism uh, into the Australian literary landscape. I think you do a really amazing job at kind of exploring that kind of historical moment within this country's history and exploring kind of, as you said, the um, the power of privilege and I think the tensions of early colonisation. And I think particularly 
just following on from that, who gets to be a hero and why? And you've spoken about, you know, the two Wiradjuri men, um, Jackie Jackie and uh, Wagadine's dad, um, who save, yes, Yari, who save, you know, so many people in these floods and, you know, they get this kind of symbolic at best thanks for what they've done but not really gratitude and respect in a, in a meaningful way. Can you can you talk mm. a little bit about that? Mm. Well, in terms of the flood itself, so the flood went for over three three days of torrential rain in uh, June of uh, 1852, as you mentioned. Now, what's extraordinary for me is, you know, this is a point in time where Aboriginal people were living, living under various acts of legislation, uh, denying freedoms and so forth. It was a Masters and Servants Act. Uh, we were leading into the acts of protection, which would start in the 1880s in New South Wales, people being moved off country, out of town and so forth. And these two men, but there were another two men, Long Jimmy and Tommy Davis, who were somewhere else um, along the river, um, I, from what I understand, didn't save any lives. So they don't get the recognition either. But these two um, were Adrian men go out in the dark of night in raging waters and torrential rain to save the not, you know, a third of the town, well, they, they say between 80 and 100 people drowned. Mm-hmm. And over the period of that time, over that time, Yadi and Jackie Jackie went out on their canoes and saved between 59 and 69 lives. And, you know, at that point in time, it wasn't, it, from my reading of the experience, it wasn't about black and white, it was about two men going out and saving other human life. Understand what I see through that, that rescue is here are men who knew that river. You know, the local Aboriginal men had also, or people had actually advised the town when it was being, it was gazetted in 1838, not to build on the uh, river flats, which is which is what they did because they didn't listen, and of course the town was flooded. So. Um, I think for me, you know, we've been talking in recent years, obviously, since the Black Lives Matter movement was international, about statues that represent a whole lot of people (laughs) that don't deserve statues, but also a whole lot of people in our country also that that speak of exploration and discovery with no recognition for Aboriginal people and trackers who led explorers over mountain ranges and so forth. So for me, the story of Gundagai is quite extraordinary because it is a town that has been proactive in recent years um, in recognising our heroes. And they're not just Wiradjuri heroes, they're Australian heroes. They saved Australian lives and this is Australian history as well. Um, And since the um, anniversary of the flood and um, 2017, the following year, the Yari and Jackie Jackie were presented with posthumous heroism awards. Um, so there is that also national recognition as well. And I think it's very, very important that um, as particularly as a young people are coming through an education system, that they don't just learn about one one idea of heroism and mm. that's structured and, and written by colonising nations also. Mm, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think it's really interesting the way that you have written um, about the Murrumbidgee River, the Billa. You, you know, you, you speak about it as, um, I suppose, the way that it's written into the book, it's almost a, a character in, in itself. It's um, you, We see so much about how the um, Wiradjuri people know the land and as you said they are the people that were advising uh, a lot of the white settlers to get off uh, um, where they were living and and try to try to help them can you talk to me a little bit about um, the the land itself and the Wadri country and how you how what it was like for you to write about that and kind of yeah almost make the land a character into itself 
Yeah, absolutely. So for your listeners, so I was born and raised, um, I was born in Gadigal Country, raised on Darawa land or Bidjigal Country out at La Bruce. I currently live on Yagara Country up in South Brisbane. So, you know, going home to country for me down with, you know, to Wagga, my family are from Cowra and Brungle and Griffiths and so forth. Um, I always, you know, I fly into country and I see a landscape and I, I imagine to myself, I think about how my ancestors used to live. And I was down there learning my language with Uncle Stan Grant and all his protégés. And I felt... You know, we, you know, blackfellas talk about, you know, going home. We feel like we're going home to country. Because obviously everywhere we walk in Australia, we're on somebody's country. Mm. Um, but for me, it was about I wanted, I want the rest of the country to see the beauty and majesty of our land, but also this amazing river. Uh, we, you know, the Wiradjuri mob are known as the people of the three rivers, um, the Macquarie, the um, Lachlan and the Murrumbidgee, or the Womble, the Galari and the Murrumbidgee. So we Known of the people, known as the people of the Three Rivers, the river, while it, you know, obviously had this devastating floods, you know, it gives life as well. And we have, you know, the story travels from Gundagai down to Wagga along the river, uh, where we see life on the river for local Wiradjuri mob. As part of the process of writing about that, um, myself and about 20 other people in my language group, in my language course, I should say, and, and some locals got in canoes because I'm a method writer and I wanted to understand what it's like to be on the river. So we got in canoes and we rowed from um, Gundagai down to Wagga. Having said that, we did that on a beautiful November day. The sun was streaming down. I had a life jacket on. I was never going to drown. Uh, I fell in the river um, and part of that taught me you know, I was scared, but I was safe. You know, there was no way I was going to drown. Um, and it made me imagine how how skillful those men must have been in, in, uh, in those days of the flood. But also it gave me a sense of the width of the river. Um, it gave me a sense of the, of the landscape on the banks of both sides of the river. And being down in Wagga, standing in the floodplains there also gave me the idea of my character Wagadine, who's Yadi's um, fictional daughter, you know, being in Wagga and what life would, be, would have been like living on the landscape there, which is relatively flat, you know, rolling hills and so forth, but relatively flat country. Mm. I'd love to talk a little bit uh, about uh, Wagadine. You know, it, it really follows her story as she kind of moves away from um, her her family and kind of moves to to Wagga Wagga. Can you tell me, um, I suppose, why you chose Wagadine as the as the driving force of the story? Uh, the original concept of the story was always going to be a women's story. Yes, we open with the heroism of the flood, um, but we the bulk of the story is seen through Wagadine's eyes. And so the original concept, and the publisher said we want an epic novel, I had no idea what it was going to be about, but I wanted it to be about life for women on the land, or Adri women on the land, um, during a period. I didn't even have a time period at this point. And to show the relationship between Aboriginal Wiradjuri women and non-Wiradjuri women and how they both survived differently on the land. And so that idea was always there. And then um, I, that, that idea was planted in 
May of 2017, then, I, then the unveiling of the statue gave me the beginning of the story. Then in January of 2018, I started learning my Wiradjuri language down at Charles Sturt University in Wagga Wagga. And so all my um, study inside the classroom, but out on the river and in the, uh, out on country uh, over the next two years um, just made sense for me. It had to be, you know, the story had to be said in Wagga. And so I made it work that way. It doesn't end in Wagga. I don't want to give your listeners uh, any spoilers, so I'll leave it there. But it just made sense for me because I learned so much about life um, while I was down down there in Wagga and I had extraordinary support from elders down there and from that process ended up doing another book, an anthology we're working on growing up Wiradjuri with the elders group in Wagga which is fantastic as well. Oh, that's amazing to hear. I, I think in so many ways mm. this, this book really does feel like a celebration of the Wiradjuri language and I know that you write uh, within the end of the book that you, big thanks to Dr Stan Grant and John Rudder who have done significant work in um, reclaiming Wiradjuri language. I'm interested if you can speak a little bit more about your experience yeah. of learning Wiradjuri yeah. and, and how you feel like it's informed the way that you um, tell stories as a, within yeah. your craft. Well, I'll start from the end and work the other way around. So for me, with this book, I wanted to, like when I had my original idea, I had no idea that I would, it would be a, a work that had language in it. I had no idea that would happen. But when I started to learn language and, and had the ideas from the book were formulating, I knew I wanted to include as much Wiradjuri language as possible as a way of reclaiming. Uh, the original language of Gundagai and of Wagga Wagga, but also as a means of documenting our language in Australian fiction. And for me, using language personally is, is an empowering act of sovereignty. I feel like every time I can acknowledge country wherever I am um, in language and acknowledge my elders and my ancestors, that is an act of sovereignty. And I think it's important for readers to understand that every language other than the original languages and dialects of Australia they are introduced languages and that everywhere we walk in Australia, every part of this country has an original language that exists or, or existed at the point of first contact. And, you know, last year we had the United Nations International Year of Indigenous Languages, which highlighted the need to protect languages globally. And Billy Adadangalangdurai is really my very small contribution to that process. Next year, the United Nations uh, have declared will be begin the de decade of international Indigenous languages. And I, I think... Wiradjuri mob, we are so lucky because we've had we've got so many resources that have been um, carefully crafted and put together and shared so generously by Uncle Stan Grant or Dr. Uncle Stan Grant and Dr. John Rudder um, that they have taught so many people that have then gone on to teach people like me and we've had cohort after cohort after cohort go through Charles Sturt University um, learning as part of our own commitment to nation building or nation rebuilding our learning language mm. and so uh, it, it changed my life it changed my life I've always known who I am I've always been connected but giving me the the knowledge I, it, it was about learning more than language mm. and getting the knowledge that I can then share particularly in a literary landscape where Aboriginal people have often been misrepresented or not represented at all in nearly every genre, that I can actually make some contribution with, thank, with enormous thanks to uh, Uncle Stan and, and, and Dr John Rudder. Mm. 
If you have just joined us, we are chatting with Anita Hayes all about her new novel, Bila Yara Dang Galang Dure. Um, Anita, just talking about that, I think it is an uh, incredibly exciting and you know powerful act that the uh, that you know the title of the book is in Wiradjuri. Um, can you tell me, I, I suppose, a little bit about that because it, I, I you know I don't think in kind of the commercial literary landscape it's something that we we see. So it does feel like a really exciting step forward. Mm. Well, um, it's, it's interesting because not long before my book came out, my book was at, had been typeset and uh, was at proof pages, but I was lying by the by the pool. I was driving to Sydney and stopped at Cops Harbour and I was reading Marty Simpson's Song of the Crocodile. And I was like, and there were so many, and a debut novel, absolutely brilliant, long listed for the miles, Franklin. Um, and I'm just reading this book going, this is, here's this young woman who's writing her first novel and I feel like I'm not even at that level and I'm 18 books down and probably twice her age. Um, but all through, she's got lots of language through her novel as well and increasingly we're seeing um, more language being introduced into the work, into works by Australian um, First Nations authors, which is fantastic. Um, and for, I now have forgotten your question, Beth. What's the question? I, I just, I, I think you're answering it, just what it means, oh, right. yeah, to, to have right. uh, Radri yeah. on, the, on the front of book covers. Oh, well, on, on the front cover. Well, so this was, the, so my amazing publisher, uh, Simon & Schuster, have been extraordinary through the entire process um, and want, and wanting to push the boundaries. So, you know, usually for an author, you get cover, you get sent a, a nearly final cover for your comment, right? That's what normally happens. And in an extraordinary act, uh, I had a Zoom meeting because we're in the middle of COVID last year, obviously. I have a Zoom meeting with my publisher, Cass uh, DiBello, and she shows me about eight covers. And we go through every single cover. She says, what do you like about this? What do you like about that? What don't you like? What would you like to see? And which, is, which doesn't normally happen. And she said, we really want to push the boundaries. And I said, if that's what you want to do, then we need to take... We need to take English off the cover. So, I mean, I originally thought it was, it was, I wasn't even going to get any language on the cover at all. And now we've got only Wiradjuri language on the cover. Um, and congratulations on your pronunciation. Very impressed by that, Beth. Um, and we have English on the back. And so we realised very quickly that it was the first time in Australian commercial publishing history that that had, that had ever happened. And so, which is extraordinary, Right, and I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future in terms of how Australian publishers work with First Nations authors, but also I feel I, I spoke uh, at the opening of the Australian Publishers Association conference earlier this year, and I said to them, you know, Uncle Stan's legacy is the language. My legacy is a, is a small contribution to that. What will your legacy be in terms of first, publishing First Nations stories in this country? because there is a responsibility and an accountability to get it right, uh, as there is an accountability and responsibility for publishers not to publish works that do not follow um, an appropriate methodology. Mm. And I also said to them that they are not to kid themselves, that they, that they think they're publishing the great Australian novel if that novel does not include First Nations people. Because if a novel is set in Australia, it must in order for it to be the greatest Australian novel, it must recognise wherever that novel is set that the traditional land of that of that setting um, is is an is an Aboriginal nation. 
And so if, 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 if you're writing a novel and there's no recognition of that at all, well, in my eyes, it cannot be regarded as a great Australian novel. Mm, I absolutely agree. And I, I really hope and I, I do feel like there is a shift towards uh, publishers being very con- conscious of that. And I do hope that, you know, this book is another kind of mark forward because putting that um, Wiradjuri language in um, people that don't speak Wiradjuri's mouths, I think, is an incredibly powerful act. Um, and, yeah, congratulate you on, on all of your work. I'm interested where you see, um, I suppose, your your future of, of your work going and if how you, you know, uh, see yourself incorporating more Wiradjuri into your work. Um, absolutely. So there will be an announcement in a couple of weeks when we sign some contracts about some new work. But I will tell your listeners that um, we will be doing a children's picture book version of The Great Flood mm-hmm. so that school kids around the country can learn about these heroes. And there will be language in that, of course, uh, with a glossary if need be and teachers' notes and so forth. But it's at the end of every book, and many authors will tell you this, it's sort of when you send it off to the printer, it's like, never going to write another book because it's so exhausting. Mm. Um, and I had two months of absolute anxiety just before this book was released because I want my old people to be happy. I want the people of Gundagai to feel that I, I have represented them with respect in terms of, you know, they're still descendants of people who drowned alive. I've met with them. Um, but... You know, not long after that, and you get positive responses. I start. I'm like, okay, what else needs to be done? What other stories? Now, I ask the people. I ask my family and people I respect on country. What needs to be done? Because I am in a position of privilege with access to publishing, with some skills in writing that I feel like. Um, I have a responsibility to do that. So I, you know, I look to be doing a couple more books around in a similar vein, epic historical novels, and I look forward to talking to you about those in the future. Mm, well, I look forward to talking to you about them too. Um, Anita Heiss, thank you so much for your time and, uh, yeah, for this incredible book. I've just really loved reading it. Thank you so much. Or in my language, Mandangu. That was Anita Heiss there talking about her brilliant new novel. It is called Bila Yaru Tarang Galang Dure and it is out now through Simon and Schuster. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I Said the Sea Was Folded is a new collection of poetry by Eric Jensen. It spans the first three years of Eric's relationship with his partner, Evelyn Ida Morris, who we just heard from. These are love poems written against the difficulty of understanding another person. Joining me to speak about it this afternoon, award-winning journalist, founding editor of the Saturday Paper, editor-in-chief of Schwartz Media, uh, and the author of this poetry collection, Eric Jensen. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you, Beth. Um, It's a pleasure to chat to you. Eric, I think um, in many spaces you're probably known for your work um, with Schwartz Media and writing and reporting, um, but perhaps not so much of your poetry. This is your first collection. Can you tell me, um, have you always been writing poetry? Uh, I started writing poetry seriously when I met Evelyn, and these poems were all written for Evelyn um, and to Evelyn. Um, and they are, I guess, an extension of the nonfiction that I've always 
written. They're not um, they're not poems that try to imagine um, something larger than what has just happened. They're they're more like an attempt to kind of catch the intimacy between two people and to try to make sense of what it is to feel and what it feels to fall in love. Mm. And I'm interested. Do you feel like is your the way that you write for poetry different to the way that you write your other work? In both, um, in both instances, writing always feels to me quite capricious. Um, very often, I'll be taking notes um, while working on a, a non-fiction piece, and then when I go to transcribe them, not really have remembered writing down the phrases that are there. And these poems felt very much the same. They're, they're often written um, at lunch breaks or in sort of spare snatches of time um, on these pieces of paper that I then fold over and over and, and give give to Evelyn as, as kind of, I guess, small sentiments from the day that had just gone. And, um, and it does feel to me a lot like the same process of just waiting to try to understand the world. Mm. Um, and I think the, the only difference really is that a lot of my journalism has been about creating a space between myself and the world and, and filling that space um, with writing, I guess, to make me feel safe in some way. Um, I think poetry is about collapsing that space entirely. And so instead of those, those words acting as a, as a means of creating distance, the words act to, to remove that distance. Mm. I'm really interested in that, in the act of writing poetry first and foremost as a gift and then it kind of becoming a collection um, itself. Can you tell me, I suppose, what that process was like from deciding that these were for Evelyn to kind of it becoming yeah, a collection of work? Yeah, I mean, I think that process was more complicated than I first um, <laughs> thought it would be, I guess, um as a journalist, you know, you're constantly in the processes um, of the small betrayals of publication. Mm. Um, and I didn't really appreciate that publishing these poems really forced Evelyn into the role of muse, which is a, a gendered role and one they never asked for or sought to occupy. And so we had to talk a lot about, you know, why I'm wanted to publish them and what publishing them would do. I, I thought of it as a simple act of love, but of course that's, you know, love itself isn't simple and, and also no act is um, is one thing. Um, and ultimately Evelyn's decided to make um, a, a score of music around the poems that will come out later. And so that has sort of, um, I guess, leveled the space between us and between, and between the work itself. Um, but certainly, you know, it, it, it is... I didn't find it confronting or surprising, I guess, because it's just how I've always operated. But but to take something that is entirely personal and was written for one person and is very much theirs and, and belongs to them, perhaps more than it belongs to me, and, and then to publish it, it you know, it, it does create um, a power dynamic that was unintentional. Mm. That's really interesting that Evelyn is writing a score. I think that's really exciting, and I, I look forward to listening to that. I suppose that's what happens when you have artists in a relationship um, and you're able to respond to each other, uh, not only in your personal life, but through your work. I think that's, um, it's, it's pretty special and it's, it's exciting. Um, 
I am interested in, I suppose, what you're talking about in terms of the kind of personal stakes that were involved in, in putting this out for both you and Evelyn and perhaps how that differs from, from your other work. Has, have you found that, I suppose, a personal challenge to be so vulnerable on the page? I haven't found that to be a challenge. I think it's because the choice is mine, because the words are mine, and these are my recollections of episodes we shared together, um, it's it's probably more of a challenge for Evelyn than it is for me. That said, whenever I write about someone, um, to some degree I fall in love with them. I think that's been true of every biography that I've written. I think it's true even of political journalism when you're working on sort of long-form political pieces. I'm always looking for some means by which to enter the subject and for the subject to overwhelm me. And I guess I had not until now found a relationship where that happened for me romantically also. Um, and, and I guess that's probably why it seemed so natural to me to want to publish these poems because, you know, when I when I wrote a biography of Kate Jennings, I was just giving myself over to them as a subject and, and, and falling in love with them as my subject. And it was true when I wrote about Adam Cullen as well. That, you know, I, I was looking for such an emotional intensity in the process of, of the biography um, that I ended up feeling something akin to the intensity that comes with then publishing something that is actually genuinely and romantically personal. Mm. I'm interested in, I suppose, the way that you, we kind of touched on this, but the way that you view poetry, you know, you kind of speak about the the form itself throughout some of these poems. Um, in one you say, I met Jane Hirschfield, who told me poems are a diary, a, note, a, a diary note to remember what happened. I'm interested for you, do you feel like poetry is an act of remembering? I think so. I think, I think the most beautiful line of Lawrence Ferlinghetti is when he says, poetry is the shortest distance between two people. Mm. And I do really believe that. And I also believe that, for me at least, words are how I make sense of things. Words are how I think, but they're also how I feel. And so to be able to write something down is to be able to feel it in a way that maybe I have less access to when I'm simply living it. Yeah, I, I think there. Are, yeah, I think that's really interesting, and and there are so many poems in here that really, um, yeah, kind of pick away at the the small parts in life that really make up a life uh, and make up love. You know, you touch on uh, chicken soup and and love. Uh, sorry, love rocks and and turtles and the color orange, and you speak about your dog Henry and just all of these moments that really make up a whole a whole life. I, I'm interested if you can tell me a little bit about, I think that the structure of the book itself, you know, you, you kind of, at the start, you say uh, the story has been told backwards because that's how we start. And then you kind of go into all of these small moments. Can you tell me a bit about your decision behind that structure? Yeah, I mean, I, I decided when assembling the poems um, that I that I needed to, to, to interrupt um, I guess, the linear nature of their writing. I, I, it didn't feel right to just begin with the first poem that I wrote for Evelyn, which I wrote the first day that we met. And to keep writing from there, it, it made a lot more sense to try to create an echo 
in the remembering of a relationship, even though all of the poems were written um, sequentially and in real time, to, to then to read them in reverse order is to feel the relationship, um, I guess, kind of ping back and forth um, through what become for the reader familiarities um, that were already familiarities to us as as the people within the poems. I think um, wh- while I was editing them, I was talking to Helen Garner about her diaries and she was saying, you know, she was trapped, stuck with this big tree and um, it was, you know, an aspect of her diaries and when she cut it down, all of the rest of the diary entries made sense and it sort of, it, I, I guess it was slightly similar as this idea that um, if you change one fundamental thing about something that was otherwise entirely um, not mundane but it, but it, but entirely kind of sequential and real as it was lived if, if you can make one artistic intervention into that that upends the way in which the rest of it will be read you, you're able to maybe take life and force it into a shape that mm. feels more like art mm. I'm interested in I suppose that process of um yeah, maybe something going from uh, what was perhaps more of a more of a diary, more of a love, uh, more of a gift um, to a lover, to to being something that is um, for a public consumption. Essentially, I'm interested in your role as an editor in your day to day, and how I suppose that practice informs the way that you think about your own your own poetry, your own work, and if that uh, how that kind of plays out through your your process of. of the kind of polishing stages of the, of the work? I think the wonderful thing about poetry is um, the attention it gives to smallness. Mm-hmm. And quite often, you know, I might write a, a piece of journalism that's a few few thousand words long but only really have one moment in there that, that felt special. Um, and the thing about poems is that they allow for that one special moment to be everything. And I guess that's where editing and poetry collide because it's it's a capacity to look at and walk through the world and edit it only to the things that feel worthy of remembering um, and to do that without the need to necessarily build narrative, although, of course, you know, we are human creatures and we have a tendency to narrative and narrative exists in a lot of these poems. But... Um, it, it's sort of liberating as an editor to be able to get rid of everything you don't want and then have to worry about whether or not it still makes sense. Mm. And, and what's your experience like of perhaps working with an external editor when you're used to doing that as your, your day-to-day? I wish I could say I was, um, you know, that I've been humbled by my work as an editor and so I understand the process and are, are completely able to submit to it. But I think I'm a very difficult person to edit, I, I, I find it really hard to um, to accept changes to my work, and so um, happily, uh, with you know, this is quite a personal collection. I think Black Ink were quite willing to um, to let the poems stand largely as they were. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, I don't find it easy to be edited, and I I um, I should probably have more sympathy when I edit other people. <laughs> Do you feel like it's changed the way that you edit other people? Not, no. I wish, I, as I say, I wish I could say that, but um, I, I've always kind of distinguished between 
the work that I do as a writer and the work that I do as an editor. And while I think editing makes you a better writer and being an editor, I think, makes you a better writer or a sharper writer, um, the two don't neatly marry. Mm. You, you speak about writing as a, as you said, like a way to better understand the world. I'm interested if, you know, through this collection, you know, it really is about um, learning about somebody, learning how to care for someone, and I suppose learning how to be close with someone and stay close with someone. I'm interested if you feel like through uh, writing all of these poems that it's helped you better understand, uh, I suppose, yourself and, and your relationship? I think so. I think, um, for me, the scariest thing about writing is that when you write something down, at least in my mind, it becomes true. Mm. And I think one of the most difficult things in a relationship is to agree on what's true. Mm. And in writing these things down, I had to feel and think in ways that I might not have made the effort to in, in previous relationships. So it it was, and these poems are, a means of navigating um, the special intimacy that comes from deciding to be with somebody. Mm. Eric, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks so much, Beth. That was Eric Jensen there speaking about his new poetry collection called I Said the Sea Was Folded. Uh, it is out now through Black Ink. It's almost time for me to get on out of here this afternoon, but of course I want to do say, I do want to say a big thank you to my guests who joined me this afternoon. Anita Heiss for speaking to me about her new novel, Bila Yara Dangala Dere, which is out now through Simon and & Schuster. And Eric Jensen just there for talking to me about his new collection of poetry called I Said the Sea Was Folded. That went out through Black Ink. I'll be back with you next Wednesday from 1 o'clock. Keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.